Okay, John chapter 14. This week I've been thinking a lot about promises. A promise, according to my computer's dictionary, a promise is a declaration that, that, that one will do something or that some particular thing will occur. A promise is an indication of future success. Uh, to promise is to pledge or to assure or to guarantee, and the degree of guarantee is directly related to the trustworthiness of the one making the promise. Well, God, as you know, is entirely trustworthy. And the Word of God is full of promises that are meant to encourage and enliven our faith in Him. However, sometimes our understanding or application of God's promises is such that, ironically, we grow more discouraged than encouraged. Or if not discouraged, then perhaps disconnected. In other words, sometimes there's an apparent disconnect, isn't there, between what God says He will do and what's actually going on in our lives. You know what I mean? Perhaps nowhere is this disconnect. This disconnect between what God says He will do and what's going on in our lives. Perhaps nowhere is this disconnect more apparent than in the realm of prayer. Have you ever felt like prayer is more like tossing, a pen, tossing pennies into a wishing well than talking with the all-sovereign God. More like crossing your fingers for good luck that, rather than grabbing hold of a sure thing. More like fishing for answers than finding them. Have you ever felt disconnected from God's many promises about prayer, just wondering how they work, how they translate into your life, or even if they work at all. If prayer is the pathway to a more personal relationship with God, which I believe it is, then understanding the promise of prayer seems both necessary and beneficial. And so as we turn our attention to the promise given here in John 14, my overarching thought or my guiding thought this morning is this. God promises to fulfill every prayer that's offered in the name of Christ according to the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. God promises to fulfill every prayer that's offered in the name of Christ according to the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. And so I want to consider each of these three aspects to prayer this morning, and then I want to close with just a very simple application. For context, chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John detail some of what went on with Jesus and his disciples on the night of his betrayal and arrest, just mere hours from his death. 
It's sometimes called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourses. Jesus knew his time had come, and so he gathered his closest followers, got away with them privately, and he began to comfort them. Now, it's really quite amazing when you stop to think about it. If anyone needed comfort in those moments, it was Jesus. In less than 24 hours, in less than 24 hours, his cold, lifeless body would lay dead on a slab of stone. Mocked and taunted, he will have been brutalized and beaten almost beyond recognition, stripped, scourged, and crucified for no fault of his own. It was a horrific scene. He will have been forsaken not only by these disciples with whom he now met, but by his heavenly Father as well, something he had never before experienced in all eternity. He will have borne the sins of the whole world, something you and I simply cannot fathom. We can talk about it, we understand it, we try to grasp it, but we just cannot fully grasp what that means, that he bore the sins of the whole world. So if anyone needed comfort at this time, you'd think it was Jesus. And yet I want you to see just how self-forgetful our Savior is, how he loved and served his own to the very end. These verses before us today are found in, in one of the Lord's farewell discourses. Jesus and his men had just taken the Passover when he clarifies for them some very important things they'll need to know and remember. So chapter 14 actually begins with the words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And believe also in me. And then he says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says in verse 12, I'm going to the Father. Essentially, he's reassuring them and he's again calling them to faith. And then he makes, makes this remarkable promise saying in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And just in case we missed it, he says it again to accentuate his point in verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask, he says. Ask me anything, he says. I mean, it sounds like a promise of endless possibility. Now, this would be an audacious statement and utterly ridiculous if not that it was made by Jesus Christ himself. The Son of God. Very God of very God. 
The possibilities indeed are endless so long as we understand a few things. So long as we understand that our thoughts and ways are much lower than His. He is infinite. We are finite. He is unlimited. We are obviously limited. He is all-knowing. We know only in part. He is creator. We are creature. But the tendency and maybe even the temptation in prayer is to reverse this creator-creature relationship so that we effectively treat God like a genie in the bottle. Someone from whom we want our every wish and whim. I want to read something from Brian Chapel and comes from his excellent book on prayer titled Praying Backwards. He said, if God were really obligated to do what we think should happen, then God would be tethered to the leash of our understanding. He says, if, if our wisdom, if our wisdom defines the limits of God, of God's, then our world will inevitably unravel. He says, we must trust God more than our wishes or concede that our world will be controlled by billions of competing wishes that we have neither the power nor the wisdom to control. For example, if a dying grandmother grows tired of fighting the disease that racks her body and prays instead for her home going, she just wants to see Jesus. She's ready. While her family who loves her and doesn't want her to go prays for her healing, whose prayer gets answered? Or when athletes credit God for winning the game, are we to assume that the losing team didn't pray or didn't pray hard enough or long enough or whatever enough? If a farmer prays for rain to nourish his crops while a nearby church <laughs> prays for clear skies to protect its already scheduled outdoor event, whose prayer wins? So instinctively, we just understand the dilemma. The question then is, how do we reconcile the obvious limitations to our prayers with God's wide open promise about prayer? And the, the answer is, the answer we find here is in how we pray, or more specifically, in whose name we pray. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the promise of prayer is realized when we pray in Jesus' name. So let me ask you, how many of you say in Jesus' name when you pray? Mm-hmm. And, and why is that? Why is it that we say in Jesus' name when we pray? And what do we mean when we say in Jesus' name? Is saying in Jesus' name the same as praying in Jesus' name? 
To pray in Jesus' name is not like waving a magical prayer wand over our prayers so as to summon the good graces of God. It's not like an exclamation point in prayer in Jesus' name meant to emphasize just how serious we are. Or it's not this... Uh, it's not like some spiritual seasoning that we sprinkle on the top of our prayers to make it more palatable to God. Instead, to pray in the name of Jesus, hear this, to pray. To pray in the name of Jesus is to rely upon and align with Jesus. And so I think it's fair to say that saying in Jesus' name is not the same thing as praying in Jesus' name. Because to pray in Jesus' name is to rely upon and align with the Lord himself. It means at least three things. First, it means that we must believe in Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples, remember, with those who believe. Whoever believes in me, he says in verse 12. So the promise he makes here is for those who actually trust and follow Christ. It also means letting go of your name. This is big. It means letting go of your name to lay hold of his or to pray on the basis of his merit, not your own. And third, it means to pray in ways that are consistent with the will and work of Christ. I think Jesus is essentially saying, I will do. I will do whatever you ask if you trust me and my purposes for you in this world. If you trust me to do what's best and entrust yourself to me, then ask whatever you wish and I will do it. And so the promise here is both a guarantee and a limitation it's like an endorsement on a check or like an endorsement on a check. Praying in Jesus' name guarantees whatever you ask, but the check must, must be cashed at the bank of his will for you and his work in the world. The key then to unlocking this remarkable promise is to pray with the purpose of Christ in mind. To pray with the purpose of Christ in mind. In fact, the promise of verses 13 and 14 follow the purpose of verse 12 where Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. That's the purpose. Will do the works that I do. Well, what works did he do? He touched lives for God. He taught them about God. As God, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. From the beginning of his ministry, he declared the coming of the kingdom. And throughout his ministry, he demonstrated the difference of the kingdom. At the end of his ministry, through his death and resurrection, he opened the doors of the kingdom. Essentially, he sought and he saved the lost. Therefore, the work of Christ is a saving work. It's a work. It's the work of redemption. It's God's saving work in the world. And Jesus continues this mighty work through us even today in even greater ways. 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Greater works than these will you do. Not greater as in more spectacular. That'd be impossible. But greater in their extent. In other words, our works are both an expression of Christ and an expansion of his work in the world. And we need, no look, we need look no further than the very inception of the church and the book of Acts and the opening chapter. Remember, there are just 120 somewhat timid yet prayerful followers of Christ. Just 120. After three years of ministry, Jesus had about 120 disciples. Not too many more than the number of us here in this room. But when the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 stood and preached his sermon, 3,000 souls were saved to Christ. That's greater work. The church was formed and it took the message of Christ to the world. More and more people, we're told, were being saved day by day. That's greater works. Even when persecution came, the church scattered and spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said, that's greater works. We are here today. Because of it, we are some 7,000 miles from Jerusalem, across the Atlantic Ocean, on an entirely different continent, removed 2,000 years from the time of Christ, yet the saving work of Christ is still affecting our lives as well as the lives of people across the globe. That's greater works. And the works we do are greater in extent and even in clarity because we do them on this side of the Messiah's coming. We do these works knowing Jesus as Messiah, the Savior of the world. We have more answers, more clarity than even those who walked with Christ. And yet Jesus comforted them with the news that though he was returning to the Father, they would do even greater works in his name. And prayer, he says, would be the key. Prayer would be the key. You see, there's this obvious connection, this obvious historical connection. It's fascinating, really, when you do some reading on church history, there is this obvious historical connection between the works of God's people and the prayers of God's people. Spurgeon said, Prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. And so we pray and we work in the name of Christ to the glory of God. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so the Father receives glory in what Jesus has accomplished and still accomplishes through the lives of his people. Do you hear that? The Father receives glory in, in, through what Jesus has accomplished and still accomplishes through the lives of his people. Prayer then. should revolve around the Father's glory, not our own. Remember, we learned this from the Lord's Prayer. We're to begin with God's name, with God's kingdom, with God's will. It's then when we experience the promise of prayer. It's then when we're aligned to the purpose of God in Christ. Now, question I, I asked at this point is, is how does that happen? How do we align with the purpose of God? It, it, it's like the song, the, 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 the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Like, I know how prone I am to wander. So how do I align with the purposes of God? How does that happen? How do I align in such a way to where these greater works are being done in me and through me? And I think the answer Jesus goes on to give is by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want you to notice that Jesus follows his promise on prayer with another promise in the section that follows from verses 15 and following. Specifically there, he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our ever-present helper, it says, our counselor and advocate who is given to us and will be with us forever, verse 16. The Holy Spirit is truth, and He dwells with you and in you. Verse 17, the Holy Spirit is a gift from God in response to Christ's request on our behalf, reserved only for those who trust Christ. You see, the world, because the world does not know or receive Christ, neither can it know or receive the Spirit, but you can, you can, you can and you do when you trust in Jesus. If you want more power in prayer, if you want more effectiveness to your prayers, if you want to see this promise of prayer bear fruit in your life and in, and in your work of the gospel, then walk in and be filled by the Holy Spirit. That which transformed those initial 120 uncertain disciples into bold witnesses for Jesus Christ was the coming of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God came in power like a rushing wind that filled the entire room and the lives of every single follower of Christ and those believers through prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit worked the works of Christ to the glory of God and literally changed the world. 
And the same Holy Spirit who was with Jesus and with and in them, the early church, is with and in you. The same Holy Spirit. You don't get a watered-down version. You don't get a second-rate spirit. The same Holy Spirit, that same power that through Jesus brought new life to spiritually dead souls is alive in you. That same wisdom that led Jesus wants to lead you. That same love that flowed through Jesus now flows through you. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are effectively calling upon the Holy Spirit to direct our prayers. That's why we can pray, right? That's why we can pray without worrying about getting the words just right because the Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts, we're told. And according to Romans 8, the Holy Spirit even prays on our behalf according to the will of God. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit searches our hearts and then prays according to the will of God on our behalf. Oh, people. We need spirit-infused prayers, do we not? We need spirit-led prayers. We need spirit-taught prayers. We need spirit-empowered prayers. We can't do the works of Christ ourselves in our strength, our wisdom, our love. We're not supposed to. God wants that we go to Him in the name of Christ for continual renewal and refreshment by the Holy Spirit so that we become spirit-filled in every circumstance while the fruit of the Spirit is born in and through our experience. The name of Christ, the work of Christ, the Spirit of Christ. And I want to try to apply this to just our everyday experience in prayer. Are you with me? Okay. Do we need to stretch? Okay. I want to try to apply this. The name of Christ, the work of Christ, the spirit of Christ. I want to try to apply it to our everyday experience in prayer with just one simple application Whenever you go to God in prayer, maybe it's today, tomorrow, or whenever, I think the application here is to ask boldly and surrender completely. Ask boldly and surrender completely. God wants that we ask him. God wants that we ask him. He's our Father in heaven. And the Bible says that if we, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask. Look to your Father and ask. Be bold in prayer and offer prayers that only God can answer. Prayers that basically compel you, force you to trust Jesus. 
and rely upon the Spirit. We hear the accounts of great people of prayer throughout church history, great accounts of answered prayer, like those of George Mueller, who seemingly, you read his journals, he seemingly began every day with near nothing. Just a clean slate. And yet saw God provide for him and the hundreds of children under his care in remarkable ways. I just believe that God wants to widen the scope of my prayers. I think God wants to widen the scope of your prayers so that we are basically forced to exercise faith. So when we hear of the UCC shooting and other similar tragedies, we cry out to God. I mean, don't you just want to cry out to God if for no other reason than only God can do something about it? Father, please, Father, please, please, please heal our land. The Bible says that God is able, right? We sang, He is able. Well, the Bible says God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. And so I just want to encourage you and assure you that God does not shy away from big, bold prayers. Nor is he unconcerned with the seemingly small ones. I think sometimes when we look at the big things in life, and yeah, sure, we understand why God might be concerned for them, but, but is God concerned or how is God glorified when I pray for things like lost car keys or a parking spot in a crowded mall? Or that my kids would sleep through the night so that my wife and I can sleep through the night? Are these unimportant things to him? Are these unimportant things to him? Even if they're important to me. How is God glorified in those requests? I think he receives glory in that. That is the faith of a child, right? That we come to him and we're just bringing everything before him, big and small. God invites us to cast all our cares on him, all our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And he cares for you and loves you as a child means you can go to him about anything. He sees you and he knows you and he knows what's on your mind and heart. Remember that authentic prayer is the real you meeting with the real God. So ask and ask boldly but surrender completely. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul did? When he pleaded with God, he pleaded with God to remove his thorn in the flesh. He was bold in asking God to remove his affliction. Three times he begged God until he heard God say no. Came to a point when he knew that God wanted him to experience the sufficiency of divine grace in the affliction, not apart from it. And the same is true for us at times. For reasons we may not readily understand, God is working even the hard things of life, even the excruciating things for the good of our faith and for the testimony of our faith to others. 
That's why Peter, when writing uh, in the context of suffering, that's why he says to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And the inference there is that others will be drawn to you. They will be drawn to you. They will be curious about you when they see how you respond to the hard things with hope. So we ask boldly, but we surrender completely. And of course, nowhere is this more prominent than in Gethsemane. It's there in the Garden of Gethsemane where this ask-surrender relationship is most clear. When the Lord Jesus, just mere hours from his death, just mere hours from what's taking place here in John 14, just a, a matter of mere hours, where he boldly asked the Father for another way. Father, Father, please, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. So deep was his anguish, we're told that his sweat became like great drops of blood. Listen, he was dreading the cross. He was. He was dreading the cross. And yet he surrendered to his Father's will in love for the Father and for us and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That brings us back to the heart of the matter, to our comfort and our confidence in the cross of Christ. You see, the promise that Jesus makes here is comforting to us because and only because the cross guarantees it. The promise that Jesus makes to us here is comforting to us because and only because the cross guarantees it. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because we are in fact, we are in, we are in fact in Christ. We're in Christ. Because he suffered in our place, bore our sins to bring us to God. To trust in Jesus is to bear sin's burden no more. It's just the opposite, in fact. It's to be clothed in His righteousness and to come to God without shame and with full acceptance to receive the love of your Heavenly Father. It's to be in everlasting communion with the triune God. And so we're going to share communion this morning. In just a bit, we're going to sing first. We're going to sing praise to God who promises to fulfill every prayer that's offered in the name of Christ according to the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've shared. Now we just want to respond to you, Lord, in song and praise and prayer. And we ask that you'd prepare us.
for the table. Have your way in us and in this room. Send your spirit to walk among us and to lead us and to, to flood our hearts with joy and peace. For we ask it through Christ. Amen.